The reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a Sildama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, Kubazavas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tony, for reading that. And uh, good morning, everyone. It's very nice to see you. We're a lot emptier this morning. I always say um, when we're less in number, I like it. because um, Not because I don't like having the young adults here. It's great to have the young adults with us. And please do pray for them on their camp. But uh, it just means after the service, it's a little bit easier to get to talk to people. And one of the things on Sunday, because we're filling the hall out, is it's quite tricky to get to see people. And um, sometimes there's a lot of people we don't know, and it's a bit hard to go up and uh, say hi and introduce yourself. Today, it's a bit easier because it's a smaller number. So please do um, make the most of it. Well, I'm going to pray before we look at Matthias, the patron saint of gambling, and then uh, we'll get straight into things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. It's been wonderful already to, uh, to sing of your faithfulness, to uh, sing together, shoulder by shoulder, as brothers and sisters in Christ, of the things that we believe. 
and to ask for you to speak to us. And now as we spend some time together as a church family, as uh, St Stephen's here in Shirley, we pray that you would indeed speak to us by your spirit through your word. That as we look at this kind of unique one-off incident that happened so many years ago, uh, you may see its relevance for our lives today. You may show us that relevance, that you may uh, help us see the difference it should make in the things that we believe, in the way that we live, uh, and in our view of you. So please be at work in each of us now by your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, During my first year at Bible College, uh, my principal, Peter Jensen, was nominated to become the Archbishop of Sydney. Uh, He won the election, and on the day that he was elected, he and his wife, Christine, walked into our college chapel to a standing ovation. I still remember it. There was lots of uh, grown men and women crying because he was very well loved. And I'll always remember what he said. He said that in God's kindness, he had been appointed the 11th principal of Moore College, and now in God's kindness, he'd been elected the 11th bishop, Archbishop of Sydney. Then he paused and said, I don't know what to make of that, but I do know I've never been 12th man. Now, if you missed the significance of that statement, he was talking as an Australian that loves cricket, and he does love cricket. And in cricket, of course, there's 11 members of the team. So to be the 12th man is to be the reserve. You're the one that replaces injured fielders when they need a break. You're the one that runs off with, um, runs on the field with emergency bats or pads, or you bring out the drinks. Today we're going to see the appointment of a 12th man, but unlike cricket, this 12th man isn't a reserve. This is a 12-man team, and he is going to be an important, actually an essential part of it. He's made a member of this 12-person team in our passage today. Today we're going to see Judas Iscariot, who remember was the disciple that did the dirty on Jesus. He has left, and he's going to be replaced by Matthias but we're going to see that it's an odd thing that goes on. It's even done in an odd way. So we're going to have to think about what it means. What is all this uh, about? If you were with us last week, you'll know we've just begun a new series in the book of Acts. Acts comes after the Gospels. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which all tell the story of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. So he rises back from from the dead, and then for 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared to different disciples at different places at different times. But then he ascends to be with his father, and his earthly ministry comes to an end. But we saw last week, that's not the end of the ministry of Jesus. Acts tells the story of the beginning of Jesus' heavenly ministry. And so what the book of Acts is, is it tells the story of how the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he did, how that good news went out and changed the world, turned it upside down. We said last week that the world that you and I live in has been so impacted fundamentally by Jesus Christ, permanently, eternally affected by him, that we don't even realise it. But it was turned upside down. All of history changed after Jesus after the good news of Jesus went out. But how did that happen? Acts tells us how it began. And so in particular, we saw last week that Jesus continues, finished his earthly ministry, but he now does his heavenly ministry in two ways in particular, through his people, firstly by the apostles, and by his spirit. 
and his people and spirit do his work on the world. And so Acts will show us how the apostles and how the spirit of God do the work of changing hearts, of changing lives, of bringing people from death to life, bringing life and rest and peace. How, how the people, the apostles of God and the spirit of God change the world. And of course, one of the things that we, we saw last week and we're going to see every week as we go through, this is still the same. This is our story. We've been caught up in it. You and I, if we trust in the Lord Jesus today, we are God's people who in the, in the power of the Spirit are still to witness to this world about Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why, why churches exist and what life is all about at its fundamental level. Now last week, a key phrase that I didn't stress too much, but I will as the series progresses, was verse 8, where it said, Jesus was speaking to his apostles and he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that sentence almost becomes the structure of the book of Acts. It's a bit like a rock thrown in a lake, sending out ripples. So it sends out kind of concentric circles, is it concentric? concentric circles as it goes out. So the first part of the book of Acts is the ministry of the apostles and the spirit in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 to 7. But then it pulls back, next concentric circle, we see the ministry of the apostles and the Spirit in Judea, Samaria. That's to the, not to Jews anymore in Jerusalem, but to half-Jewish people. Remember the Samaritans were half-Jewish. That's chapters 8 to 12. Then we'll see the next part, the last part of the book of Acts, as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, as it goes out to Gentiles. The book will finish in Rome. That's what's going to happen. But today's passage comes before all that. It's very different from what's going to, the kind of excitement of chapter 2 when the spirit comes down and it all explodes. Ours is a kind of odd story. And so we want to be thinking why it's here. Why is this little section here? So we're going to work our way through the verses, just noting a couple of things, and then I've got nearly one point uh, that we're going to finish with. Uh, lastly, um, last week, uh, the other thing we, um, we saw was Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came. Then the ascension happened, and we picked things up this morning, if you look behind me, with them going back to Jerusalem. Verse 13 tells us they go to an upper room. Maybe this is the same upper room that uh, many of them had gathered with Jesus the night before his death and got that crucial teaching that you read in John's Gospel. Uh, then it lists the names of all Jesus' disciples. Very rarely do we see the list of all the disciples of Jesus named. I think it's only when they're called, actually, in the Gospels. Why are they named here? We're having it highlighted to us that there's only 11 names. We're having it highlighted to us straight away that Judas of Iscariot is no longer there. And we'll come back to why that is in a moment. However, those 11 are not the only ones there. Verse 14 tells us they were joined together constantly in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus. Now, apart from Mary, Jesus' mother, the, the other women aren't named there, but it's very likely that this includes Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna that Luke speaks about in his Gospels, uh, perhaps the sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, and we know from... G from um, the brothers of Jesus. What are the brothers of Jesus' name? It's like a quiz question. James, Judas, we've run out, Joseph, and Simon. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So they were there. Uh, 
But the important thing actually isn't the names, which I guess is why they're not named. The important thing is what they are there to do. Do you see what they're doing? They join in prayer and it says they pray constantly. In fact, that word there in verse 14 is a very strong word. It's like continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is very important. Jesus has just told these disciples that the Spirit of God is going to come on them. They will be witnesses of him out to the ends of the world. The world will turn upside down and the first thing that they do is what? They have a prayer meeting. They have a prayer meeting. They got together to pray because there is nothing more important than the people of God can do than come before their Heavenly Father in prayer. Acts shows, I just said this in the introduction, Acts shows that God's mission in the world is a partnership between his people and his spirit. And so the most important work that you and I can be doing in all times is to be praying that his spirit be at work. Getting together to pray is the most important task we can do as a church family here at St. Stephen's. Whether it's before our services, as a number of us do, or uh, after our services when people uh, meet to pray together. Whether it's our quarterly prayer meetings. It's crucial in a way that very few other things that we do as Christians are. And we don't just pray for the work. Prayer is the work. There's a difference there. Prayer is a task in and of itself because we can't do all the work we need the Lord to be doing. It's us humbly recognising that we can't do anything without the Lord. It's only him that can change hearts and lives and we need to be in prayer that he will be uh, doing his work by his spirit. Which is why it can be so disappointing when so few people are involved in prayer ministry in church life. I'm not just talking about here at St. Stephen's, this is not a dig. This is uh, in all kind of churches around the world. Prayer is a, a non-negotiable for us as Christians. It should be like breathing air. And the sad thing is you can run lots of meetings in church life, which people will come to, uh, lots of uh, other social events put on, but prayer, le- prayer meetings and hardly anyone comes along. This should be a challenge for us as a church family to, to change the way our mindset is. The most important thing going on in the world right now, the most important thing going on in this world right now is not whatever Donald Trump's doing. It's not uh, the upcoming New Zealand election. It's not the all-black results or anything else that's reported on the 6 o'clock bulletin or in the press. It will be three mums getting together to pray in the smallest village in the Solomon Islands. That's more important. Because what God's doing in this world is the most important thing that's going on and we participate in that primarily as we pray to him. It will be as two or more are gathered together to plead with the Lord, to seek his leading and power and strength. Prayer is the number one thing we need to be doing. And the healthier our prayer ministry is here, the better. I look forward to the day when Wateri comes to see me because she heads up our prayer ministry and she says, Jay, we need more space because there's too many people coming to pray. That'll be a great day. She's saying yes down the front. But we're not there yet. (laughs) Well, that's what we find the disciples doing straight away. The first thing they do as they engage with God's mission in the world is they pray. They come together to pray. Well, carrying on in the verses, we see Peter stand up among the, we're told, 120 or so believers, and then he speaks to them in verse 16. Brothers, he says, The scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and he shared in this ministry. 
So Peter's about to speak about Judas and he's about to quote two Psalms of David but he says here that had to be fulfilled. Interesting, Peter says the words of David are the words of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's our doctrine of scripture right there. We believe that the scriptures were authored both by their human authors and by God. When we're reading Acts, Luke wrote it, but so did God. And and, um, Peter says the same thing of David here. David wrote this psalm, but it was actually the Holy Spirit speaking through him. But before he quotes the two psalms, Luke, the author, now comes in. So it's been Peter speaking, but you'll see now Luke, the author, gives a little bit of an explanation about Judas. You can see it in the brackets there in verse 18. We read... With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. Now that's a bit different to what's said about Judas in Matthew's Gospel. And it's caused some people a bit of uh, unrest, unease. Is is this a case of the Bible being contradictory and you can't hold the two things in, in, uh, it's just intention? But I don't think you have to see it that way. The two accounts are saying things from a different perspective. What I mean by that is, Acts says that Judas bought the field. Matthew doesn't. But what Matthew does is show that Luke's doing it shorthand. That's how he's speaking. Because what Matthew tells us is it's actually the chief priests that buy it, but they buy it with the money of Judas. Remember, Judas got 30 pieces of silver for betraying his Lord. In Matthew, we read that Judas became so uh, filled with guilt and remorseful that he went to the chief priests to give them the money back, but they wouldn't take it. So he threw it on on the floor. But they couldn't just keep it as their own because it was Judas's, so they buy the field. So it is Judas still buying the field. It's still his money that's going for it, but Luke just does it in shorthand. Uh, Matthew says that Judas hung himself. Uh, And so some people go, well, it doesn't say that in Acts, but it could say that in Acts. It could seem very likely indeed that after hanging, uh, the rope or the branch that he was hung by broke, and then what we read in Acts here occurred. It's just a, a different perspective on what went on. But what I want to emphasize this morning is, as soon as you think of Judas, if your heart isn't taken by the tragedy of his tale or the warning of what went on with him, then I think we're missing something. Judas is a tragic and sad reminder that it isn't enough to just be around Christians. It's not enough to just be exposed to Jesus. You actually have to have a personal relationship with him. You actually have to trust in him and follow him. Because Judas saw everything. Judas was there day after day seeing the incredible things that Jesus had done. He'd heard the incredible messages that Jesus had preached that no other ears have heard anything like it. And yet he still rejected him. Even more than that, as I just said in in Matthew's Gospel, it's clear that at some point Judas felt guilty. He felt ashamed of what he'd done. But that guilt and shame obviously didn't take him to turn back to Jesus in faith and repent. And that's a tragedy. We see that in verse 25. It makes clear that Judas didn't end up in a good place. And so do you see that there's a difference between just feeling sad or guilty? That You've got to do more than that. You've got to turn to the one who can deal with that sadness and guilt. You've got to trust in him and repent. If Judas had, he would have been fine. Because anything we come to the Lord with, anything that we've done or are feeling guilty or ashamed of, we can come before the Lord and have it dealt with by Jesus. But Judas obviously didn't. 
And so if that's you today, I want you to look at Judas and take warning. Feel just so sad about it. Because just being exposed to Jesus isn't enough. Just being around other Christians like Judas was isn't enough. Feeling guilty isn't enough. You've got to turn to the one who can do something about it. You've got to have a personal relationship with him and trust in him and follow him. If there's anything we can learn from Judas, I pray that it would be that. Anyway, back to the verses. So Luke's given us a bit of an introduction into Judas. Peter then quotes the two Psalms of David that he said need to be fulfilled. That's Psalm 69 and 109. And the point of these two quotes is they need to replace Judas with another apostle. That's what's being said. And then Peter gives what he thinks is the key requirement that this replacement will need. Have a look at verse 21. Therefore, Peter says, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us, just before the ascension. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, what we saw last week needs to happen with this appointment. Last week we saw that the key thing about these 12 apostles was that they had to be eyewitnesses of everything. They saw it. They heard it. They experienced it. Well, the replacement of Judas has to be the same, with them from the beginning, having experienced and witnessed everything. And so they end up with two possible candidates. Joseph, He's got various nicknames. It's like he's a criminal. He's, uh, very, Joseph and Matthias. Then they pray about it and perhaps surprisingly they cast lots and then pick Matthias. Uh, casting lots was probably, to the best of our knowledge, probably having stones with markings, putting them in a pot and rolling them out. In other words, they flipped a coin. They rolled the dice that's how the twelfth apostle was chosen. What do we make of that? There are some, Andrew just said, we make of it, it's a board game. He's trying to get more business for his board game evening tomorrow. Now, there are some people that are so concerned with what happens here, they say the disciples acted inappropriately and they made the wrong decision with Matthias. And as you read through the book of Acts, it's clear they made the wrong decision because who should have been the twelfth apostle? Paul. Paul should have been the 12th apostle and if they'd only waited and if they hadn't played with dice or flipped a coin, then they would have got it right. I don't think that's right though. Paul doesn't fill the criteria that Peter says needs to happen. He wasn't with them from the beginning with the baptism of John all the way through. He was, as we know, the persecutor of Christians. And there's nothing in this, uh, in this passage when you read through it that gives the impression that it's wrong or that they got it wrong. In fact, I think it's the opposite. The natural reading of these verses seems to make uh, clear they did the right thing and got the right person. So what do we make of it? Yesterday, I met with the nominators of St. Stephen's to talk about the staffing of St. Stephen's. Should we have flipped a coin? Should we have rolled the dice? If so, I've got bad news for our church family. We didn't do that. But should we have? There's a couple of things to notice here when we try and work out what's going on. Firstly, I said this last week and I'm going to say it a few times as we go through the book of Acts, there's a difference between describing what happened and prescribing what must happen. 
Acts is a book of, it's a narrative book. It's telling the story of what happened. It's not always telling us what we must do. When you read the epistles written by Paul and Peter and John, they are, they are prescriptive. They're saying what we should do and believe. Acts is narrative. It's just describing what happened. Secondly, this is the last time that you find the casting of lots happen in the Bible. And what is the difference between then and now? What's the big difference? Yeah, someone said 2,000 years. Yes, that's right, 2,000 years. What's the other big difference in terms of God's big timetable? Pentecost, the Spirit. The Spirit hasn't come down on God's people yet. That's going to happen next week in chapter 2. So I take it that we, you and I, as people with the Spirit, don't have to cast lots in the same way now. Now, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with casting lots or flipping a coin or rolling the dice. In fact, in Proverbs, back in the Old Testament, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, uh, this proverb actually says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. But, I don't think we're supposed to read this and go, casting lots, that's what I've been doing wrong in my decision making. But, the other steps are, did you see that casting lots was actually the last step that the apostles got to in their decision-making process? And the other steps are all repeated again and again and again through the scriptures by the people of God trying to make decisions that will honour God. And so I think it's very important to look at the other three steps of the decision-making process that the disciples do here, even if the casting lots one seems to be an optional one, uh, pre-spirit. What were the other three steps that they took as they made decisions? Firstly, they went to the Scriptures. Peter said what David said, what the Holy Spirit said through David. They went to the Scriptures to get the non-negotiable principles to help with decision-making. Then secondly, what did they do? They used wisdom. Peter said, look, this is the kind of requirement we need. That wasn't from the Bible. This was just Peter using his godly wisdom, going, what we need is someone who's been with us from the start, right the way through to the ascension, who can be an eyewitness as they carry on. And then thirdly, what was the third step? They prayed. That's a really good kind of process to have in mind when you're wrestling with making a decision as a Christian. Go to the Bible and get the non-changing, uh, non-negotiable principles Use the godly wisdom that you've got and then pray that God would help lead you and guide you as you make a decision. And, and this is an important uh, area of life because looking for, guidance, uh, looking for guidance from God in your life, it, we do every day. From big things to little things. What job should I do? What, who, who should I marry? We want God to lead us and guide us. Well, use these three steps. Bible, wisdom, pray, then if you want to flip a coin, flip a coin. In other words, get, the, get the, the unchanging principles from the Bible. If you're talking about marriage and you want to know, right, who should I marry? Who does God want me to marry? Go to the Bible and you'll see a few unchanging principles about marriage. You must marry someone from the opposite sex. You must marry someone who's not a close family relation to you. You must marry someone that um, uh, is a Christian. Now, they're the unchanging principles. It's still a fairly broad group. Well, use your wisdom. It would make sense, doesn't explicitly order us from the Bible, but it would make sense to get someone that you can trust. It would make sense to get someone that you can respect. I think respect is hugely important within marriage. Then pray. Then, then flip a coin and work out who to marry. But do you see the, do you see the order? 
Same with a job. If you're trying to work out what job, go to the Bible and see what it says about work. Firstly, it says that work's fundamental to who we are. We should be working. That's not paid employment, but it is working. It will say that um, some jobs are probably out of line for Christians. Uh, They may be legal in this country, but they're probably not what God wants for us to do. Then use wisdom. Then pray. That's the kind of principle that I think is here. It's not saying you've got to cast lots because it's a different phase of history, but I'm not against the casting of lots if you... But think of those other three. Anyway, that's the... um, I think I've said enough on the decision-making. That's the section. Why is it here? It's an odd section, isn't it? Before we get into the power of the apostles uh, filled by the Spirit going out and changing the course of world history, we get this odd, strange little one-off unique incident. Well, I think uh, it's because we, we get this before the amazing work of this book because there's two vacancies that need to be filled before anything else can happen. There are two people that have left and they need to be replaced before anything else can happen. Who are the two? Judas and Jesus. Next week, we will see Jesus replaced as he sends his spirit down on his people. But in this section this morning, we're seeing Judas replaced, replaced by Matthias. And that had to happen. But even that's interesting. Why did they have to replace him? I don't know if you thought about this when you heard the reading, but think about Joseph. Who's Joseph? Remember, he's the guy who's up for the job against Matthias, but he called heads when he should have called tails. Think about Joseph. What was the difference between Joseph and Matthias? Nothing. Nothing was. They had the same experiences. They couldn't be split. That's why they had to flip the coin. There was no difference. Joseph could have done the job. In fact, Joseph probably did do the job. He probably spent the rest of his life witnessing to Jesus. So why wasn't he called an apostle? Because that's the key. One of them needed to be designated an apostle with a capital A. There had to be a twelfth man. And the twelfth man wasn't the reserve. It was the last person in the team. See, the other t- I said before, the, the, apostles, the disciples don't really often speak about the names of all the disciples. The other time Luke wrote the name of all the disciples was when they were called first by Jesus. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 6. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. The 12 apostles with the capital A have a special significance and role in the church. As I said, I take it that Joseph probably did spend the rest of his life witnessing about Jesus, but he was never an apostle with a capital A. They're the ones mentioned last week who are the eyewitnesses who go out and who the ministry of Jesus is based upon. They're the ones that Luke chapter 22 says will have 12 thrones in God's kingdom. Not even Paul is one of the 12. Now Paul will be called an apostle but with a small a. He's not one of the 12. Poor old Joseph here missed out because he threw two sixes and two fives instead of four fours. He came that close to being one of the twelve. But just before you feel too bad for Joseph, he gets one less mention in the scriptures than Matthias. So he's still pretty good. He's still remembered down through the ages. But if Joseph and Matthias are the same and probably ended up doing the same, why must there be twelve? Because Jesus is starting a new people of God. The twelve is very significant. Under the old covenant... Israel are the people of God and they're made up 
by the 12 tribes of Israel and all the people of God, each Jew, is descended from the line of one of those 12. Now, under the new covenant, Jesus, if you like, fulfills Israel. Israel in the Old Testament is called the vine. Jesus in the New Testament says, I'm the true vine. Israel in the, Old Test- in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, is called God's son. They wander in the wilderness, tempted to see what's on their hearts, and they fail all those temptations. Jesus in the New Testament uh, is called God's son, is led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights. He succeeds everywhere where Israel failed. He's the new Israel. And he will base his people not on 12 tribes, but on 12 apostles. And all the people of God will come through the ministry of those 12. Not based on bloodline anymore, but on hearing and responding to the witness, the testimony of the witnesses, the good news of Jesus. This is the foundation of the people of God. This is the foundation of the church. The apostles' ministry is to be the ground on which we're built and on which we continue building. And the foundation had to be rock solid. And this is what is meant or should be meant when people talk about apostolic Christianity or apostolic succession. It means that it's the same Christianity that those eyewitnesses shared and spoke and testified to and has been written down for us in the scriptures. If you hear people talk about apostolic succession based on a particular order of bishops or popes, I don't know what they're talking about. As if you've got to be part of a denomination that has the right line going all the way back to Peter of bishops or, or priests. No, that's not our apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is the next generation following the same teaching and witness of the apostles. And then the next generation doing it, and then the next generation doing it. And friends, that's our heritage. I don't know the lineage, but we could work it out. That one of those twelve spread the gospel to someone else that spread the gospel to someone else, that spread the gospel to someone else, that brought it to these shores in New Zealand and then brought it to Christchurch and then brought it to Shirley and then brought it to you and I. We could trace our way back to one of the twelve, which is incredible because it means that you and I are not second-class citizens. That is our family tree. That is our, our, our pedigree, spiritually speaking. We come from one of the twelve. In the same way that the Israelites could say that they were part of the, the uh, tribe of Judah or Levi, we're one of the... We, we don't know which one, but we're one of the 12. That, that is our heritage, our whakapapa. It's not based on a particular bishop or pope. It's based on the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. And so that's what this passage is doing. The 12th man had to be provided, had to fill the vacancy of Judas. And the ministry that you and I have and we have as a church family is to stand on that foundation and continue to preach and live that foundation in the world around us. Next week, we're going to see the vacancy of Jesus filled as his spirit comes upon the believers, including those apostles. But today, all I want us to do is to give thanks that the vacancy of Judas was filled, that a twelfth man was kind of brought in, not just to bring drinks or to bring relief for a weary fielder, but to finish the team and build the foundation upon which we still walk and which we preach to the world around us. Let me pray. Father, it's with sadness I pray at the moment because I think it's hard to read these words and not be filled with the tragedy of Judas. And I pray that for any of us that that can sympathise with him, that perhaps see a little bit of ourselves in him, that we wouldn't hold off, that it wouldn't just be guilt, that we wouldn't just be around Jesus, but we would love him, we would trust him, 
Please give us the ability to be able to make that step or talk to someone this morning about it. But Father, for the rest of us, I I pray that we would rejoice in the 12 apostles, your people that began the heavenly ministry of the Lord Jesus under the power of your spirit. We thank you that we we walk in their shoes. We, we, We stand on their foundation and we have the privilege of sharing their same message with the world around us. Please help us do that more passionately, more faithfully, more effectively. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.